I'm Al Kingsley. I often describe myself as a man of many hats. Most of my time I'm spent as Group CEO of Netsport, an educational technology software company. I'm chair of two multi-academy trusts, clusters of schools in the east of England, as well as sitting on the Regional Schools Commissioner's Head Teachers Board. I'm an avid writer and speaker about all things EdTech and love to uh, amplify that position as a lifelong learner. The introduction I had to Al Kingsley was prompted by a book he wrote, published by John Catt in 2021, cleverly titled my secret EdTech diary. If you work in K-12 schools or districts and your job is to support learning technology, you should buy a copy for your office that you'll hand to a new hire or colleague looking for nuggets from a lifetime of experience in the field. And buy one for your own shelf. Al's book is actually the perfect read for the post or aspirational post-pandemic school year. It'll help you as you clear the deck for new ways of working moving forward that leverage strong heuristics from the last couple of decades of technology and K-12 education especially. I agreed to have Al's publicist introduce us before I read the book because after I read his bio, notably after 30 plus years of developing technologies, planning, coaching, and supporting schools in the UK and elsewhere globally, I had a feeling he'd have things to teach me. And I wasn't wrong about that. It brings me back to why I started this show. I think it's because as we come so close to the 100th episode of No Such Thing, it's a great moment to look back a bit and realize how much I've learned from the journey. I set out to learn in the open and share my conversations widely, working to make sure that genuine inquiry, like a grappling hook I could throw out across the gaps in my own knowledge and experience, could help me make meaning in a field and at a time that One minute can feel like the Wild West, and the next like the overgrown, boarded-up lot where they shot Wild West movies at one time, but now cats live and not much else. I digress. From chapters on procurement and working with vendors to developing teachers' digital skills, my secret EdTech diary is a treasure trove of learning from Al, and I think you'll enjoy meeting him here before you go check out his book. If you've already read it, don't go anywhere. We cover lots more than the book in our chat. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Al, I'm really excited to have this conversation, in part because one of the things I loved about your book is that it reminded me um, in many ways how those of us who do this this crazy work of um, thinking about technology and education, there are a lot of us who are like-minded in, in the idea that Technology is not always the solution. Um, the The title for this podcast, No Such Thing, comes from uh, a piece of work that was done, I believe, in the early 80s by a cognitive psychologist um, who's now at, at one of the uh, UC schools who basically said, you know, uh, technology is uh, no more responsible for delivering education than an ice cream truck is for delivering nutrition. And um, I'm paraphrasing, but I will leave a a note as I have in episodes past in the show notes to folks who want to learn more about that. But I really, I was struck by somebody who has spent a life doing this work. I was struck by your willingness to say, hey, look, um, there are ways that technology brings us into a new future that we may have an opportunity through COVID to realize in a more immediate way 
Um, but there is also a truth that technology is not always the answer. And I wanted to start there and have you just respond to that and tell me a little bit about how the book came about with that in mind. I absolutely agree with the sentiment there. And it's a really difficult one because the, the first persuasion for anybody listening to me or who knows me and my passion for the effective use of educational technology is to assume that by association, um, I'm implying it's the panacea to everything. Now, we all know in reality, the magic that happens in the classroom is the human interaction between teacher and students. And, and technology very much, therefore, sits there as the facilitator. I also think people's misconceptions around what we mean by educational technology often means that there's somehow a, a, a swap that when we use more technology, it means less human, less teacher, mm. and it's an alternative to. And so part of the driver for, for writing the book, apart from, as I often joke, I've reached that point in my life where if I don't write it, I'm going to probably forget it soon. Um, but the bigger driver really was that educational technology shouldn't become under the umbrella for people of, well, it's tech, therefore it's the domain of the techies or the the geeks or the nerds or whatever people labels they want to put on it. It's it's something that we should be using and thinking of as a general tool as part of our everyday lives. So I wanted to write a book, not that it was presented as some kind of research document, because that's well above my skill set, but very much as if we were having a conversation, something that makes educational technology accessible to all. Because the most effective tech is the stuff you don't notice, you just use. It just does what it says on the tin, and it has the impact that you hoped to achieve by it. So I think, like everything, you know, we always start, particularly in education, by being reflective. We kind of start our journey by looking at the lessons we've or experiences we've had previously with technology. And that kind of shapes our opinion or our receptiveness to how we're going to take things forward. And so part of the book starts with that kind of mindset of actually some of the biggest projects with technology that failed didn't fail because the technology was no good. They failed because there wasn't the project plan or the training behind it to support staff and integration. So, so that's really the driver for me. And so if we think of technology as being that extra facilitator, that extra level that can actually empower good teachers to be great or great experience, um, lessons and experiences to be amazing, um, or to facilitate better communication and engagement with all of our stakeholders, then I think we shift the focus to what we're actually really trying to achieve. Nuts and bolts of the book. You uh, you admit that at the start, it is something of a diary, but you're not sure if that's a misnomer. Explain what you mean. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, truth be known, there was a, there was a book um, that was was famous when I was was younger, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, and that was kind of my first starter for ten that I I wanted to copy. But the reason why I wanted to call it a diary was actually everything, all of our experiences with anything, and edtech is bar one thing, are really shaped by that journey that we're all on with our experiences with technology, and so a journey and a diary really kind of work in parallel very nicely. And I think what I wanted to do was kind of take the point of, well, I'm writing a book now. So what are the two key elements? One is that reflective part of looking back and learning lessons from how we've adopted. So we've got that longer term view over the last 20, 30, 40 years. We've got a really condensed period that's been amplified the last 18 months where technology has had that catalyst for being more prominent in our discussions. And then we've got the so what, the what next? What does that mean? What are we going to take forward with us? What are the opportunities of the future? And so actually, when you're thinking of things in the context of time, 
I kind of felt diary was a a different way of presenting it. And I suppose in essence, it's also a nod to me saying, look, again, it's not a research book. This is me sharing my experiences and the experiences of many trusted voices from around the world that I wanted to put down. And I'm not giving lots of answers, although I try and give a few, but I'm also really trying to focus on giving people the right questions, the right things to think about that allow them to take their journey forward. Yeah, I thought it was really successful in that way. And it was familiar to me as a diary in that it was, a, it is, um, it's easy to read. So I guess that's a little unlike a diary um, in that it has a, a narrative thread that that's easy to follow. But, um, but I found it like it to be like at least my, my journals in that um, there is something of an amalgamation of input from others, thoughts and themes that have sort of carried with you through your career, and then others that are extremely timely and relevant to this moment that we're in. And that was another thing that really struck me about it. And one of the reasons I thought it was important to have this conversation is everyone is asking about how to plan for not now it's no longer how do I plan for 10 years from now? It's how do I plan for this semester with all of this in mind about what we've just experienced through COVID? And the book is very much about taking advantage of this moment and asking ourselves the right questions as educators and districts and um, and schools. Yes. So so I love that about it. I, I wanted to ask you to uh, just about this school year and back to school. And one of the things I really appreciate about your perspective and, and where you've done your work um, is that it's not, not just in the UK. Uh, you, you have a, a, a following that is beyond uh, your immediate day-to-day um, work. And I wanted to ask you what you're noticing about the back to school experience for the different contexts where it's happening, the different geographies, and what are what are the through lines that seem very consistent and what are the things that maybe are a little different from place to place? I think what's reassuring is there are quite a lot of common threads, but there are some differences, often about pace, which sadly are often linked to resources. So, for example, you know, many of the international schools have had a platform of technology due to the funding model that's allowed them to adapt in in slightly different ways. I think most schools have taken the natural human persuasion of um, trying to get back to normal. I can all define that word normal in different ways, but returning to the, the, the traditional ways that that core order of the day was done. The thing that I've seen that's really um, resonates with me and reassuring, and, and apologies because it's not really about tech, is that actually our first priority was about focusing on our children's social and emotional needs. Actually, the things that were missing out most, that interactions with their peers, the the music, the drama, the sports, the activities, those things that really are important. Because I do believe you've got to build on a strong foundation, get children in the right mindset, they're actually going to be a better place to learn. So then that pace of, of how schools have returned, I think has been partly linked to the success of their IT adoption. So where we've seen schools over the last 18 months, whether they're Google or Microsoft, and I'm tend to be very agnostic because I think both have great offerings as a core platform. Um, But for example, you know, solutions like Teams that they've used for both interaction and shepherding with their students and doing their assessments, but also for communication between staff and so on. 
those have now become embedded. Before they were a, a messenger app that some people were familiar with and many didn't really get what it was all about. Now they're embedded. We're seeing they're continuing, which is a big positive because it's breaking down perhaps some of the departmental silo working and actually there's, there's greater sharing of resources. I think that also links into other topics like well-being and so on, having that greater collaborative work between staff. Um, schools absolutely are recognising that the blended model had had benefits in some regards. The challenge for some is how do we continue to use that whilst we've got our cohort back in the school building? So where we've seen, for example, that long discussion and debate between synchronous or asynchronous, which is the way to go, when we've all kind of recognised, well, blended, every cohort's different, every teacher is different. Actually, the short recorded exemplars that are being used in schools, they still absolutely have a place in terms of building up resources in a repository for students to access as and when required. We're seeing, because we still have limitations and restrictions from the COVID factor, that some of the successes that were achieved in terms of what well, we have our parents' evenings, parent conferences online, we're actually getting a larger engagement with parents. And so schools are looking to embed and adopt that as a long-term strategy. In terms of the topic, and it's a phrase that I don't particularly like, and different regions use different terms, but we often get referred to as catch-up. How are we going to bridge the gap in what's perceived as lost learning? I think what we're seeing is there is actually a really, really focused and strong space there for technology in terms of some of the solutions that are available to develop personalised learning. And, and often they fall under the category of the AI conversation. And some people go, oh, that's exciting. And some go, oh, scary. You mean computers taking over from teachers? No. But the idea that we can actually take learning tailored for an individual child rather than the cohort of 20 or 30 students and based on their responses, we can tailor whether we're working backwards to build on a foundation or taking them forward to deliver stretch in terms of their learning journey. And I think that's where we've got this fusion now where some of the tools we adopted, perhaps sometimes quite rapidly because we had to over the 18 months, we've seen some have become quite successful and give us opportunities to build. And others perhaps are starting to gather a little bit of dust whilst we figure out whether they still are appropriate moving forwards. When when educators come to you or maybe you're working with schools and districts and you have educators who are really excited to implement technologies that they've found on their own, what what is the advice that you give them? Maybe it's before their school has done an implementation or or before this is less so something that is coming from the top down and and more so, you know, hey, I've, I've found this perfect thing to complement my blended approach. What advice do you give them? What should they be looking out for? Yeah, it's a conversation that I have quite regularly and I try and, and encourage because I actually think when we see, we put aside the kind of school-wide student data systems and MIS systems, Actually, one of the bigger failings for larger entities, whether it's school districts, mats, whatever it may be, um, often is where too much of the decision making about the pedagogy focused tools comes from a central decision mm. and actually mm. doesn't have the teacher voice and the teacher input. And you've got to find a balance. So what I always say to teachers is, is firstly, if you've looked and got a solution that you want to recommend or propose, the first thing is, are any of your peers across your district or within your area using it? so that you can, rather than buy something and find somebody else has gone for option B or C, mm -hmm. there's an option to make sure that you can align where it's appropriate. That benefits in terms of internal skills and the support network, which ties in with the CPD. The second part is, it's a bit linked to the fact we've had this big acceleration of lots of choices when it comes to ed tech and, and the solutions available. 
the narrative has very swiftly moved to the need to figure out ways to effectively choose solutions and evaluate their likely impact. Does it, the technology stack up against the shiny brochure on website? And so you'll see increasingly now that there's the, the, the focus around the evidence-informed solutions, the pedagogy-focused, basically solutions where in order to put that through for purchasing and to get the recommendation, there's some really sensible checklists you need to start thinking about. So it's always going to be about, is there any research to back up the evidence of the solution if it's a curriculum-based tool? Are there case studies from other peers? Have you checked with your own peer network to get any evidence? Is the product available on trial? Is the product device agnostic? And that might feed into your school or your district's broader digital strategy. Are you going to buy a tool now that means when children change classrooms, they're not going to be able to continue using that tool because it only works on a particular platform? Um, is the data within it portable? in the sense of um, if you invest in a bit of technology and 12 months from now there's a better solution, are you able to migrate your data or is it locked in there forever? Mm. You know, and one of the things I talk about, you know, a, a point in the book is about looking at sticky solutions. Sticky solutions are great from a vendor perspective because we want customers to invest in our ecosystem and stay with them. But if we recognize the pace of change, we also as schools want to be mindful of what does this decision mean for our choices down the line longer term. And that, all those things do feed into that broader digital strategy. Having a, a sight of where we're trying to end up in five years from now, what are our aspirations and how does that align with the areas of development within our school? We probably can't define the pace of that journey because that will be linked to finance and lots of other variables. But if we know what we're trying to achieve, we can make sure that what we invest in now is future-proofed in the sense that it will allow that to be built upon as part of heading towards that ultimate goal. And over the years, we've seen plenty of schools that have suddenly jumped in and bought 30 iPads or 30 Chromebooks only to find that the next year the schools decided or districts decided to standardise on X or Y. Mm. And we see technology being wasted. And so I think that's the point about that. Don't think siloed. Come up with the evidence. Validate with your peers. Check to make sure there are case studies. Make sure it's available free to try so that you can actually make sure it does what you think it does. And then you're in a much stronger position to recommend it, not up just up the chain for purchasing, but also potentially for the benefit of others. Do you have the same issues in the UK that we do here where part of the challenge of educators picking tools that support their pedagogy is the issue of student accounts and student privacy? Is that a universal that, that you recognize? It is. It is absolutely a universal. I, I, I don't want to quote as saying in every country around the world, but certainly in all the markets that are, and regions that I work in, it absolutely is. And it often falls under a different name. In the UK, we refer to schools doing a data protection impact assessment. Basically, do a checklist before you, you buy this product. And again, you know, we go back to March, April of, of 2000. Plenty of teachers, for the best intention, were looking for online curriculum solutions. And that thought process sometimes wasn't as streamlined or as effective as it could be. So we can really kind of break it down, I think, into sort of a, a few key points. What do we mean when we're looking at data protection, privacy, and so on? Well, you know, I would say ask a few questions. Whose data are we storing? Uh, who has access to it? Where is it being stored? How long is it being stored for? And the most important one of all, why do we need to? And if we think about the, those kind of key set, sections, we kind of end up in the, we want to share the minimal amount of data to 
a third party. We want to make sure that it stayed there and is retained for only as long as it actually has a purpose and is needed. We want to have tight controls over who has access to that data. Um, and we want to make sure its storage with its provider is within the right jurisdictional control. And then I think the final part, which always wins the day when it comes to privacy and protection, is about transparency. It's about those communications to parents, about the tools schools use, the data that may or may not be shared as part of their requirement as a, as a school to deliver the education and content and curriculum that children need. But that should always be the case. Now, in many countries, that's exactly the same conversation and questions we'd ask about the school CCTV system or the system where we store our, um, you know, our safety concerns about children or their own developmental records. So it's not new, but it should be something that we consider and do a check and balance on every solution that we sign up to that requires us to send and share student and staff data into the cloud. What were the, um, I'm curious about this past year, what you saw emerge, maybe uh, surprises that were unexpected, maybe um, in what affordances existing technologies had in classroom versus others. But but I'm, I'm curious if there were any surprises from the last year about what what software and hardware proved to be the most essential for at the classroom level? I think the number one surprise, and often it kind of gets taken for granted and overlooked, is given the concerns and challenges for the last decade that schools have had about talking about edtech and digital, and we haven't got time to adopt these new technologies, that when the pressure was on, how successfully and well schools and particularly staff within the schools actually managed to adapt and deliver something. And it's easy to assume they would, but we shouldn't really, given all the additional responsibilities and requirements that were placed on educators' shoulders. And I think that needs to be celebrated because there are many businesses that adapted far less ably than we did within education. I think then that the next step behind that, and, and there are obviously there were challenges in terms of digital equity, but if we kind of look in terms of what was already in the locker, I think what we realized was actually there were a fairly good raft of core tools that schools already had, but just didn't know how to use effectively. Yeah. It's that usual, you know, technology, but we've only scraped the surface on the 10%. So what it really resonated to me, and I think it's a conversation that's continued. And at the beginning, you know, I, I referenced the fact, as you alluded to, you know, it's not the technology, it's the people that really are the, kind of the driving force here. What it really highlighted was we've, we've got our mindset wrong when it comes to professional development. We've actually need to be bringing that kind of narrative in terms of those skills earlier on in, into teacher training and also that continuous word that should be sitting before professional development often has been um, presented as being um, an hour or two of um, training at the start of the school year. And then teachers are largely left to their own devices. Correct. Um, and I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly for effect because, of course, you know, some schools are far more adept and capable than that. Um, but I think it is that mindset, which is, you know, it, we all know that the use of technology comes from confidence. And the more you use something, the more you have confidence, the more you have other stakeholders that you can go to, the more likely you are to um, you know, start that lesson and have confidence that those 30 Chromebooks are going to fire up and be and act in the way they will. And if you don't have that confidence, you'll probably head to the front of class and use the, 
the interactive whiteboard or screen instead. Um, so I think that's the, the most striking one for me was we've learned that actually many of the tools, not all, but many of the tools were already in the toolbox, just not effectively deployed. And the, the big lacking was we've never really had a reason or a focus on making sure staff were trained and had confidence in the technology. After that, I think the next lesson that's learned, and again, a bit of a shock horror from, from Al, the, the EdTech advocate, was the most successful schools were the ones that did less. Less is more. Mm. Don't try and do 10 things all at once. Uh, those that tried to embed two or three key strands in terms of their digital process and build the confidence um, often had far more success than the ones that kind of took the shopping list and said, we're going to go for the whole lot. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and in, in hindsight, that's not really a surprise, but it's kind of easy to happen. Again, particularly, um, and I often talk at length about how to construct and develop with co-production a digital strategy. But if you've got all the teams and departments within a school or district working in their own silos, the sum of all those parts, it's quite easy to suddenly realise that in a short space of time, you've got an awful lot of change. Mm. And often the, the challenge is when they all need to connect that data together, the, the systems that they're sitting on, you know, building on the, the Sandy Land Foundations. We haven't really thought about our own infrastructure to support this change. And, you know, and again, many of these things aren't rocket science, but it's um, it's under the pressure of the circumstance and the timelines. It's not a surprise, I guess. Yeah, you you. Um, I've had this conversation a couple of times recently about uh, the hour long PD at the beginning of the year. Uh, it's made me wonder a lot uh, on my own. What other fields we pretend that that's a possibility you know the idea that uh, like could we imagine for for engineers we're gonna you know start the year with uh, you know here's a new tool or here's a way way of doing things give them an hour and then and then let them let them fend for themselves for, uh, for yes. the remainder remainder of the you know the, the rest of the, the year ahead I've, I've used the example a few times of the football team or soccer team, I should say, getting my, uh, my my regional phrases right. And the idea of a soccer team having training at the start of the season and then just be expected to um, adapt and utilize right. all those skills for the rest of, of the season. Right. And it is a strange one. And of course, not all schools do it. But when we say professional development, the natural mindset is so we're going to have courses laid on every week, every two weeks. Is that what you're suggesting, Al? Mm. Well, actually, professional development is the sum of many parts. We, we've just acquired a load of new skills about how we can deliver content digitally and we can record them and create those exemplars. So the same way as we can create resources for our students, we can do the same for our staff that they can consume at different times. If we know who the confident users are within our school or district, we can signpost them better so that we can have different go-to people for different products or platforms. If we recognize that actually there's a big world out there now where there's lots of educators sharing best practice, what we need to do is hook them up. So actually what we're talking about really is about schools recognizing that we just need to provide a bit of time because the assumption can't always be that teachers will absorb that knowledge and skill set in their own time or always. And if we can facilitate a way that information can be shared and made accessible, that's how we continue to build confidence alongside actually physically using the tool. Yeah, you you I mentioned earlier that one of the things I liked about the book were were the contributions from outsiders. Um one of the quotes I pulled out here is is very relevant to what we're talking about in terms of training 
Scott Hayden says, uh, as a sector, we're too often doing half the job, specking and supplying, but failing to encourage user adoption and embed into the day-to-day. Teacher and digital innovation specialist who responded to one of your prompts, which I think was a great way of putting it. And he's a really good example because Scott Hayden um, is, is a great innovator, but he works as one of what are in the UK now, EdTech Innovator Schools, which is a program where there are schools all around the country that are utilizing technology effectively. And there is a program the government has launched that allows them to provide training, advice and guidance to all the schools within their geographical area. Nice. So it's like a go-to point to say, show us how you're doing it and how it's working well. And if we're not sure, can you come and talk to our staff and start to build that CPD rather than in theory, but based on practical evidence? And again, you know, we are so blessed within education that people's natural persuasion is to share Far more than we are in the commercial world. I always say in the commercial world, you know, you do something well, you keep it a secret. It's your competitive <laughs> advantage. Sure. Uh, so that kind of contrast is really refreshing. But that's a really good example about, you know, effective CPD, providing that opportunity. Hmm. So um, CPD is not a is not an acronym that everybody in the U.S. would use. What is the what does it stand for? My apologies. So continuous professional development. Got it. I like I like CPD better than PD, which is what is the shorthand that you hear the most here in the U.S. Um, I wanted to ask you about you mentioned equity a moment ago, and I'm curious from your perspective what chasms has COVID merely accentuated, and what opportunities you're excited to be a part of as your work moves into the year ahead and and what's coming yeah i mean i think there's a there's a number of things there i mean obviously the things that it really accentuated for me we started off really was that digital divide that equity of access for students and of course that was partly mitigated by schools being innovative and creative in deployment of technology in some cases we'd had deployment of 4g dongles and connectivity at local hubs to try and make that access but that was kind of the short-term starter for 10. Where we then learned, of course, is in terms of what COVID accentuated in terms of that inequity was about households and access to technology and devices, yeah. but also yeah. sometimes to um, technology support from a parental perspective. Um, and again, you know, ironically, when, we, when we've spent a fair bit of time talking about that PD, what we've also found is one of the ways to best mitigate and to support, particularly for younger learners in, in the earlier years, was about delivering the right kind of information and support to parents so that they were able to support and engage in the learning themselves, understanding about the solutions the school were using and having confidence. You know, Alongside, there's a, there's a whole different conversation then about making sure that parents were reassured and children about how to safely use technology in a digital sense. Um, But I think that was the biggest one, because if we look around the world, you know, where we saw the initial divide, well, the initial divide was very much about those that had strong uh, and rich ecosystems of technology that could quickly be deployed and others that were having to share capacity and resource. And not surprisingly, many of those followed the same route that those with lots of technology had more technically competent staff that could actually start to drive and impact the, the digital plans. Other schools are really playing catch up um, in terms of how that that's happened. And in different countries around the world, that's sadly been linked to government funding and the process there is for 
deployment of technology. Um, so I kind of look at it and think, well, actually, on that basis, what we sort of find ourselves in a position now is when we're talking about any kind of learning loss or catch up, you know, that that gap has been very much amplified between the top and bottom ranges of cohorts in most of our schools and classes. Um, but the gaps are very different, which is why, you know, I, I come back to that. First of all, I think there was probably the biggest gap we, we, we noticed was the social emotional need and support of children especially children that we would call here in the UK SEN, special educational needs, those children that need more nurture and support. Uh, you know, and for them, the change of routines and structure was a challenge. Uh, technology played its part, whether we were Zooming, Teamsing or whatever else it was, that face-to-face with the teacher was a really important part of reassurance. Mm. And we used that same process to think about um, how we would support our children who were moving to the next step in their journey uh, academically into the next big school to reassure them on move up day by giving them those kind of videos and, and, and a taster of what to expect in a familiar faces on online, which is a really important part. Yeah. And now what we're seeing, I, I think across many regions is that discussion and debate about what next, how do we take the technology that we may or may not have used that may or may not have been successful and, and how do we decide what to do with it? And I think there's a bigger risk, although there's an opportunity too here, but for some schools, the natural persuasion will be to fall back into the comfort zone of, well, it worked before, so let's go back to that. And others will be in a position because they've taken the time to really sit and think about their digital ambitions and that digital strategy will push on and embed the use of technology, albeit step by step, not overnight, into their delivery of teaching and learning and the broader experiences within a school. And that we'll actually find that then there'll be a, a bigger gap between the educational experience. And that affects staff as well, because the effective use of technology can have a significant impact on teaching time, the way that it can reduce down workload, whether it's from quick feedback or monitoring or communications, whatever it may be, that there are all positive benefits as well as well-being. So I kind of try and flag it as now is the critical time that we look not just at the way that we want to move forward over the next five years, but how do we reflect on the technology that's worked well over the last 18 months and take active plans to make sure that that skill set and confidence we've built up doesn't gradually wane away. I want to end in a place to give you a chance just to talk a little bit about a, a little bit about that future. And you know, one of the things I've been really interested in is thinking about obviously. Um, there is a temptation on the part of the field to think about what's next. And sometimes it, sometimes it's a, an effective exercise for us to think about what if we were to start over entirely as opposed to revising, right? Um, yeah. And it, the question is not to say that everything in education needs to be blown up and start over. That's That's not the purpose. Uh, the purpose is that as we design, sometimes it's it's helpful to think of it as a clean sta- slate. And let's imagine that our goal is to bring citizens through a system that helps them contribute meaningfully uh, to to the world around them. I have a, a a few different questions, but but based on that, if we're starting over, 
what are some of the first principles that you would reinvent based on all of your time talking with education leaders, not just in the UK, but around the world? I feel like I've been handed a magic wand for this answer. So, um, <laughs> yes, I shall use it wisely. Uh, I think there's some big questions that that I would try and address at every level, and it starts governmentally, and it's something that I'm involved in in the UK at the moment, which is one of the biggest failings of our educational system. And I want to stress that most of what we do within our schools, we do well. This is about you know shaping the edges and improving. One of the biggest failings we do as nations, uh, and it's very clear for those nations that have a more strategic vision, is we tend to make decisions within the remit and scope of an electoral cycle within our governments. In other words, we want to launch projects where we can measure the success before we get to the next election cycle so we can use it as a positive for re-election. And that happens around the world. Education is not a four or five year journey. Our children go through school for 15 years. And what we actually need to be effective is a long-term plan for education where there is a consistent and agreed level of funding and structure that's there and the way that we intend to assess our students and monitor our school success that is set in stone and doesn't change between each parliamentary or electoral term. And that would allow schools far more capability to both make strategic decisions about how they invest in their workforce and their resources, and also in terms of the mix of curriculum that they deliver and how they're going to measure progress. The constantly changing landscape means that for any organisation, even outside of education, it's very difficult to make significant changes and improvement. So, so that would be number one. The number two for me, and it's just a personal area, is I would love to see a little bit less of our focus in our schools on what knowledge students can acquire and a little bit more focus on what skills they can acquire. And I think there is, in an ever-changing landscape and world, we've always got to remember that our students need to be equipped with all the tools to leave school and work, walk out into the, the business world, start their jobs or whatever the next step in their journey is. And within that, I think both the understanding and confidence of using digital tools, as well in parallel as the critical thinking skills, the digital citizenship, to understand the implications of their digital footprint, how to challenge what information they read and its validity, how to actually empower them to research and access information. is kind of key to all of us as lifelong learners. So I think for schools, I'd be saying that's something that I would really like to see is the option for a bit more of a shift towards skills. And then I think alongside that, uh, and this is a really difficult one. My magic wand seems to have quite broad reach on this. So I might be even for a wand going beyond mm-hmm. the limits. Um, I think, you know, we, we've got to take it another level, which is what is our expectation of a teacher? And, and this is me thinking big picture. But what I've seen is, um, I mean, you know, often you get certain countries held up as the de facto standard. Finland has often been held up as a good example of the educational system. And a good example for them is that quite early on in a child's pathway, there's a kind of a split between the skills-based vocational subjects um, and the curriculum, the typical academic subjects that we might normally pick. A student can pick both and follow through both those pathways. So there's an earlier adoption to that. So, you know, I think there's there's lessons we can learn from that. But the biggest one of all for me is what is our expectation of the role of teachers? Because actually the biggest pressure we see on the reason why we have 
challenges in terms of the amount of time that can be spent in the classroom with our children, actually developing and using the most powerful skill, that relationship between teacher and child, is because they are also a pseudo social worker, health worker, um, childminder, um, you know, parent liaison, and so many other variables. And again, I, I apologize for kind of stating the obvious, but if I've got a clean slate, I'd be looking in schools and saying, actually, instead of keep adding to that full glass of responsibilities that a teacher's got, if we want them to acquire digital skills, if we want them to spend more time doing the, their professional development, we've got to take something out first. We can't just keep adding on top. Otherwise, and that's certainly the challenge in the UK and in many other markets, what we're seeing is we're, we're seeing educators that aren't in the profession long enough. So we're losing the experience and we're struggling to get the recruitment at the bottom end. And, and that's a much bigger picture than something we can fix at a school level. But I think there's a reality check that all the rest of this is meaningless if we haven't got the professionals at front of the class doing, doing the job and actually engaging and inspiring with our learners. Who are, I, I, I'm always interested to hear for leaders in this space who some of the folks you mentioned Finland hmm. where else should we be looking for innovation beyond? well I, I think it's a case of I, I don't um, agree agree with the mindset that there's 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 one system that is perfect in every way there are strengths and weaknesses in all I think often when we look at internationally a broader pace and there is a piece of work being done by the Fed the Foundation for Educational Development um, in the UK looking internationally um, typically, the, the names that tend to spring up will be Finland, South Korea, Japan as education systems. But even within little old United Kingdom, which actually operates as four separate countries when it comes to national things like education, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, you can see significant differences about the approaches in terms of how joined up they are and how and how we operate. So I think you often have to look and say, What's the key overriding strength? And normally the number one strength is cohesion uh, and cohesion in terms of the strategy for delivering education, often linked in with social services and health and other aspects as well, because those connectors are really, really key. Um, but again, uh, where we've seen in the UK, there's a much more joined up approach and a plan for education in Scotland than there is in the UK. So often our natural persuasion is autonomy is the best way. Let us get on with it. But whether we like it or not, actually, we need at a national level to have these longer term plans that facilitate the autonomy to operate underneath and beyond. So I think that's kind of another driver that we need to recognise. So um, absolutely, those countries would be ones that I would pop up on the list to have a look at. But, but there are absolutely successes in, in many nations around the world. Um, what we really need to do is acquire the skills and many many already have, which is to actually identify what it is we're looking for and, and on one level embrace that many of the things we're doing already, we're doing really, really well, and, but also recognize there are other things. And, and I would argue the best way to acquire best practice and see other examples is utilize what's already out there. The fantastic digital personal learning networks and professional learning networks that are available, whether it's, you know, whatever social media platform is of your choice. Uh, there are fantastic resources, examples, events, so much happening digitally. Fantastic shows like this that are here to give voices, insights, best practice. This is the, the, the way now that people consume information. 
I'd like to think there's still a role for books. Um, otherwise, I've missed the boat. But nonetheless, um, you know, I think this is where we can actually get many of the examples of best practice from. Al, I, I think um, folks will take a lot from not just this conversation, but from the book, which I really hope they get into. I love um, I actually love the title, My Secret Ed Tech Diary, uh, subtitled Looking at Educational Technology Through a Wider Lens. Al Kingsley, I really appreciate uh, the time you spent, and I love the book, and I hope that folks will get into it. Um, anything else that you want to uh, offer as a last word as we head into what is bound to be another exciting school year, wherever you are? Um, absolutely. And the first thing is, thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, I do want to do a shout out to everybody involved in education, the teachers, the support staff, the technology teams within education, because everyone has done an amazing job and should be constantly reminded and supported by those achievements. Uh, I, I'm very appreciative of your kind words about the book. If anybody would like to find out more, please do connect with me at Al Kingsley underscore edu on Twitter or head over to Amazon or any other good bookstores and check out my secret EdTech diary. Al, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you, Al. I'll end the recording there, but Al, um, it was really fun talking with you. And I, uh, I really appreciate your perspective and, and look forward to getting this out there. Thank you so much, Al. I appreciate it. Keep safe, sir. Take care. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 